Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So if you're joining us, maybe as a visitor today or for the first time, we've been in a series called Covenant Lessons for Families, and we've kind of gone back to school in this series. Blackboard and books and assignments and so forth. We also have other breakout sessions, meaning that this afternoon at 4 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall, we'll have a very important session. Dave Carter, marriage and family therapist, has worked in ministry. He's an author who's written a number of books. For those of you who've been around the block a couple of times, Dave Carter did what Jamie does here as director of care and counseling. He did it for the Fullerton Evangelical Free Church when Chuck Swindoll was there. So Dave Carter will be here this afternoon. He's written books like, some with provocative titles, like Close Calls, What Adulterers Want You to Know About Saving Your Marriage. Books like that. Uh, How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. In other words, how to grow deeper and richer and more trusting and more faithful. So I hope you will join us at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Years ago, when I was working on my counseling hours to try to sit for state licensing exams and was still doing supervised counseling, I had a couple come to see me. I was to discover that they were a conservative Christian couple, not from my denomination, but from a very conservative church, and they had deep suspicions of counseling and things psychological and therapeutic and relational from other people. But they'd finally decided, particularly the husband, had finally decided he was willing to come because he heard that I was also a minister. And he figured, well, probably safe then. So they came to see me. They sat down, and after just a bit of getting to know each other, I asked, so tell me what brings you here today. How can I help you? And he said, you get her to submit to me, like the Bible says, and everything will be fine. It's a moment when you want to run out of the room and get your supervisor and bring him back and say, okay, you deal with this. I knew I wasn't accustomed to something that direct, but I knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to Paul's passage in Ephesians, wives submit. I knew that's where he was going, but I also knew that we needed to spend a bit of time talking. So before looking at that and another passage... I just want to remind you briefly where we are and where we have been in this series. So we have been unpacking the Balswick model, theological model for family relationships, the four theological concepts that we have been discussing are covenant, grace, empowerment, and intimacy. And as we have discussed those, we've been looking, I'm trying to write not quite as big because I may need some more room, so I hope you're able to see that. 
We've also been trying to understand where these different theological concepts might play themselves out in a contemporary marriage and family. Covenant plays itself out clearly in the area of commitment. Commitment. Grace plays, its out, plays itself out in areas like flexibility and, in particular, forgiveness. Empowerment. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. Intimacy in areas like sexuality and communication, on which we will spend the next two weeks, the last two weeks of this series. So the question then is, how do we know if we're an empowering family? This one right here. How do we know if we're an empowering marriage, empowering parents, etc.? In what domain of family life and relationships does empowerment make itself known? Maybe the best place to look, and because of lack of space, I'm going to put it down here, is in the area of authority. Authority. In other words, the question here is, how do we handle authority? How do we manage it? Do we share it? Do we empower each other? Do we empower our children as they grow up? Or is the whole issue of authority one over which we fight, one over which we have contention and conflict, one in which we get caught up in power struggles, one in which we go to a counselor and we say, you get her to submit to me and everything will be fine. What happens in the area of authority? So I want to look at two biblical passages I want to begin, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, describing the creation of the woman, Eve. Now, I went and dug my old Bible out, my old King James Bible, with which I started ministry. I haven't read it in a long time. But I wanted to read it to you from the King James, Genesis 2.18, for a specific reason. Genesis 2.18 says... And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make unhelpmeet for him. It's not good for him to be alone. I will make unhelpmeet for him. Now, interestingly enough, in the everyday vernacular of our world, helpmeet, though it started out as two words, has gotten collapsed into one word. And that one word is used to describe the wife. I looked it up just wondering what the, if, the, if the common understanding of that was what I thought it was. So I Googled it and looked at different places. And sure enough, help me in our common vernacular means somebody who is subservient, somebody who is less than, somebody who takes care of the business and the affairs of somebody who's superior and greater than. That's a help me, and it has referred to a wife. But that is not how it appears in the Genesis text. In fact, to, to transliterate the Hebrew, the Hebrew, what the Hebrew says here is Ezer Konegdo. Ezer Konegdo. Now, you want to feel threatened? I was talking about this this morning. Right over there is Dr. Larry Garrity, who taught me Hebrew at the seminary. And I said, if anybody wants to know what grace is, go talk to that man over there because he'll tell you that's how Randy got through Hebrew. <laughs> grace. <laughs> Ezer Konegdo. Now, that first word, Ezer, means helper. 
For those of you who've had the wonderful privilege of traveling with some of our church groups in the Holy Land, our tour guide and land operator is a big, tall, you all remember that, the Razooks, I see them nodding. Remember, big, tall Israeli, about 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. He sucks the oxygen out of every room he goes into. He just has presence. His name is Ezer, and that's exactly what he does for us. He helps us. That's Ezer. Connecto corresponds to me, relates to me. There's a way in which in coming together, we become more than we would be by ourselves. Now, I want to read you from Mounts' Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words a thought or two about the word Ezer. Ezer, he writes, means helper. We've said that. But listen to this. Two-thirds of the uses, two-thirds of the time, times Ezer appears in the Hebrew text, two-thirds of the uses of this noun have God as the designated helper. God. This is no subservient, do my task and respond to my needs person. This is God, two-thirds of the time. Such as, I lift up my eyes to the hills in the Psalms. From whence comes my help, Ezer? My help, Ezer, comes from the Lord. Which causes Mounts to say this, with so many references to God as our helper, it is obvious that an Ezer is in no way inferior to the one who receives help. So the first thing we have to understand when we look at this passage, is that in the creation, God is creating two people who complement each other and who are equal to each other. Which makes what I experienced particularly interesting. I was on a committee called TOSC, Theology of Ordination Study Committee, sponsored by the General Conference, in which many of us from around the world gathered together to try to wrestle through the issues of whether or not women can be ordained for ministry in the Adventist church. We had met a number of times, and we were back meeting again. There had been a lot of groundwork, but now there were actually papers being read from those who said, I believe and support in this, and those who said, I resist and say no to this. So it was on the day when somebody was reading, a well-known speaker was reading a paper he had written in opposition to women's ordination, and he quoted copiously from Ellen White, just one Ellen White comment after another. And, and I thought, am I the only one that finds this rather interesting, that you're quoting copiously from a woman to say women can't do that? So I thought, that's, that's a bit odd. When it was over, I walked across the back of the room and ran into a former seminary professor of mine. This seminary professor is a gracious, gentle soul. Love, love him. Just a great... But he was exercised. He said, did you hear that? And I said, yes. He said, did you hear that? I said, yeah, I did. Did you hear what he did? And by then I'm thinking, okay, maybe I didn't hear it. <laughs> maybe there's something I missed. So I said, well, well, tell me what. He said that quote he read from Patriarchs and Prophets. Okay, well, I heard a lot of quotes. I'm not sure. So he said, let me read it to you. This is what the speaker had read, page 58. This was at the time that humanity has fallen from grace. Eve was told of the sorrow and pain that must henceforth be her portion. And the Lord said, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then, I'm sure he had it in the paper, but you couldn't really tell it in a verbal presentation, 
would no doubt have appeared an ellipsis. You know what an ellipsis is? I can't believe I know a word that you don't know. <laughs> Mark this day up. Anyway, so an ellipsis is these three little dots that says something else is in the original statement that I've left out of what I'm quoting. It's often used. I use it all the time in preaching because when you have a really long passage and you say, there's only a couple of things I want to draw from here, you leave portions out, but you mark it by an ellipsis. So he had an ellipsis. Eve was told that things were bad. Then there's an ellipsis. And then this. Eve had been the first in transgression. She had fallen into temptation by separating from her companion, contrary to the divine direction. It was by her solicitation that Adam had sinned, and she was now placed in subjection to her husband. And it was used to support the fact that even in creation, man and woman were not equal. And then my seminary prof said, Now, let me read you the part that got left out. And this is what it says. In the creation, God had made her the equal of Adam. In the creation, God had made her the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. So get what she's saying. If they had never sinned, there would have been no need for one to be over the other. They would have remained equal partners. And in fact, that's how the New Revised Standard Version translates that passage. The NRSV says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Partners. Equal. So Ellen, so Ellen White says, had they not fallen, they would ever have remained that way. Then she goes on. But sin had brought discord, and now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of the one or the other. Now, isn't that interesting? Created equal. You've blown it now. Somebody's got to be in charge. You. <laughs> she did this. So, Emergency measures. This is like the boss that says, okay, I'm going to put both of you in charge of this project, and somebody else says, you better put somebody in charge of them because there are two of them in charge. They're never going to get it done. So God says, okay, emergency measures. It will be like this for a while, even though it was intended to be like this. So if that's the case then, what about that passage to which my counselee referred? You tell her to submit to me and we'll be fine. Well, we go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, it's, it's well known, not much beloved. But I will tell you this, hold your tomatoes and rocks. It has become a favorite of mine. I'm not saying that just because Anita doesn't have to be sitting there. Um, you know the text. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 22. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what about it? How do we approach that passage? Well, one of the things that becomes very important in trying to understand any historical document, especially one that's removed from us by a fair bit of time, is to try to understand the context of the world in which the document was written. So since our interest in this often has to do with what it says to the wives, we need to ask, what was the reality for women in the world in which Paul lived and ministered? So three quick looks at three different worlds. But let me just, first of all, summarize those by saying life in the ancient world for women, commonly speaking, was grim. Grim. Oh, you could find an upper crust of wealthy society to which the rules didn't apply. We have that. It's called Hollywood. But they had that upper crust as well. But for the vast majority, life was grim. So life for a woman in ancient Judaism, the first look we'll have. In ancient Judaism, a woman was more a possession, more a belonging than she was a person. In fact, we get a sense of that by the, by the prayer that we know holy men and rabbis prayed at the beginning of a day. God, I thank you that you did not create me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Horrible. If you know anything about how they felt about Gentiles and dogs, it gives you an idea of how they felt about women. So there's the world of ancient Judaism. What about the ancient Greek world? In the ancient Greek world, Demosthenes, an ancient Greek writer, said this. This is a quote from Demosthenes. He said, we have courtesans, that is prostitutes. We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have mistresses for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purposes of raising legitimate children and managing our household affairs. Xenophon, another ancient Greek writer, would add to that by saying it is the goal that the wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and know as little as possible. In other words, when I as a husband step across that threshold into the public world, all your claims on me cease. You have no business asking about my life. I am in control here. And then what about the ancient Roman world? Life in Rome was well on its way to putrefaction, to putrefaction, to, to rotting, moral rot had set in. And one of the places where that was seen was in marriage. The ancient Roman writer Seneca said, we marry wives to divorce them and we divorce them to marry them. What he meant was women got passed around. There is even a custom known from ancient, the ancient world in which Roman women would keep track of the years of their adult life by the names of the man to whom they had been married through no choice of their own. Life was grim. And Christianity appearing on the scene was being accused of destabilizing society by changing the rules, the practices, and the customs. And so Paul comes along in his letter to the Ephesians. He writes a divine missive 
the first half of which is taken up with saying, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are rich because of what Christ has done for you. You are made one in Christ. And then he spends the second half of the epistle saying, okay, now this is how you are to live as one, unpacking the realities of day-to-day life. It is in that section that he writes this passage, a passage that is known by scholars as the house codes. The house codes. House codes were written by other secular writers, secular ethical writers who would write about how to conduct the business, the affairs of the home. So Paul comes along and takes a custom that was known in the world and says, okay, When it comes to disciples of Jesus, this is how I want you to understand how you are to live your lives within your families. Now, when we read this, we miss the power it had. William Barclay, trusty old scholar, I want to read to you what he says about this passage. And then try to ask and answer why he said this. It is against this background that Paul writes, some of the background we've just been describing. When he wrote this lovely passage, he was not stating a view that everyone held. He was calling men and women to a new purity and a new fellowship in the married life. Listen to this sentence. It is impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on home life in the ancient world and the benefits it brought to women. Impossible, he says, to exaggerate the cleansing effects that Christian faith had on the family as a whole or the benefits it brought to women. How is that? Reverend Barclay... Wives submit. Doesn't sound particularly beneficial. Well, understand that it's important where the house codes begin and end. So we know they begin in chapter 5, either verse 20 or 21, and they go through 6 verse 9. We'll talk about that in a moment. So to whom does Paul write here? He writes to six groups of people who would have inhabited a home in the world of Paul's day. He writes to husbands and wives. He writes to parents. Actually, he writes to fathers and children. And he writes to masters and slaves. All of these would have inhabited a household in Paul's day. Now, one word about this one. When we talk about a diabolical institution like slavery, it's important to understand what precisely we're discussing. Because the horrible specter of slavery in our own recent history was based on race and was quite dramatically different from most of slavery in the ancient world. In the ancient world, probably the number one avenue into slavery was to lose in war. If you lost in war, good luck. See Daniel and his three friends. You were hauled off 
to the country that had won, and you became their slaves. There was a second common entry into slavery that ought to make us thank God we didn't live then, and that was this, debt. You didn't pay your debt? That'd be a rough day in our day and time. But slaves could leave slavery, buy their way out, be set free, and go on to live productive lives. A diabolical institution. But understand why they were included in the household of Paul's day. So Paul is writing to these six different groups, and he has a message specifically for them. And that's where it becomes very important to understand where the household codes begin. So verse 22 says, wives submit to your husbands. And that's where some versions begin that section. Now you understand that verses and paragraphs and chapter divisions and headings were not part of the ancient manuscript text. They weren't part of it. In fact, that manuscript text was run together. And if you've ever had the privilege of seeing an ancient manuscript, you look at that and you think, how in the world did these, how do you read this? It all runs together. That's a legitimate question. You've got to be able to read and understand it before you can translate it. For one quick example, let me just ask you what this says. Whoops. Let me start over here. Okay, can you see that? The camera can catch that. What does that say? What does it say? You sure? I mean, it's pretty clear right here and right here. God is. But now the question becomes, what does the next part of that say? Is it just my bias? What I think it should say? Or would it help you to have context? For example, if I were to say to you, this is drawn from a text that is an atheist manifesto, would that help? Absolutely. Or if I were to say to you, this is drawn from a text that was written to a Christian church suffering great persecution, would that help? Absolutely. That would help you know, first of all, where to divide it and what it says so that you can then translate it. The translators face that right here. Because verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, is preceded by verse 21, a text which I would vigorously contend is the beginning of the house codes, but which some versions render it as the last sentence in the previous section. Because verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Theme sentence. Everything I'm going to say about this is built on mutual submission. In fact, I think what Paul is saying here is Christianity is a religion of mutual submission. In the Christian home, everybody gets to submit, not just one person or two. Mutual submission. Now, why would I say that? Two reasons. One is, and you can read this and decide for yourself. For me, verse 20, 21 aligns much closer with what follows it than with what precedes it. 
Now, there are scholars who differ with that, far brighter minds than mine. Read it for yourself. But the second reason is this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then we come to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Underline that word submit. Wives, submit. In fact, in some of your translations, like the New American Standard Version, those words will be in italics. Now, when I used to read the Bible and I would see italicized words, I thought I was supposed to emphasize those. So, you know, if you're coming along reading and, and submit is in italics, you read, wives, submit to your husbands. That's the, you know. And then I discovered that's not it at all. The italics is the translator's way of alerting you as the reader. This word does not appear in the original. We have supplied it so the sentence makes sense. So Klein Snodgrass's excellent commentary on Ephesians says this, the manuscripts followed by the standard editions of the Greek New Testament do not have the word submit in the text. It is assumed and must be supplied from verse 21. Because the, now, some of the Greek editions have added it, just like some of the English translations added. But it was not there. And so you end up saying, wait a second. You know, this is what they're struggling with. This is just a bunch of male chauvinists sticking submit in there, bringing me clients? What's going on here? The fact is very simple. It is drawn from the previous verse so that if you read it literally from the Greek, it would sound more like submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord, and then it goes on. And then the appearance of submit in verse 24, again, is not in the text. It's supplied. Why? I would contend it's because Paul is saying every one of these people gets to submit in the Christian home, not just one. So then how do they submit? Here's what's amazing. Do you know what he says to masters? To masters, he says, treat your slaves as your equals because you both have a master in heaven and he shows no favoritism. You think that was affecting to the Roman world? What is this? In this new group over here where masters and slaves attend the same worship service as equals. That's undermining society. And that's exactly what Paul says. Do you know what he says to slaves? Do your service as though you're doing it to the Lord, not just when the master's eye is on you. In fact, we could very easily take these and apply those two straight to the world of business. To the boss, treat your employees as your equal. Treat them with respect. And to the employees, don't just work when the boss is there. When the boss is traveling, when she's gone, do your work the same way as doing it to the Lord. Because in that, you manifest mutual submission out of reverence to Christ. And then do you know what he says to thee, to, to parents, really to fathers? Fathers in the ancient world had something that was called patria potestas, the father's power. In the ancient Roman world, the father was in control. You weren't an adult till he said you were an adult. He had the right, though this was commonly held in check by public sentiment, but he had the right to punish the child up to and including even killing the child and not face legal, legal repercussions. 
That's the kind of power the Father had. Do you know what Paul says? Don't exasperate your children. Be patient with them. Kind to them. You can almost see the Roman father saying, you talking to me? You want a piece of me? And Paul says, I do. Because if you have named the name of Christ, you must treat them with patience and kindness. To children, he says, the way you manifest your mutual submission to Christ is through obedience to your parents. Now, obviously, this is age-related. As they grow older, the obedience becomes honor. But it's a way in which submission to Jesus is manifest in that relationship. And then finally, husbands and wives. Paul, after going on an excursion theologically in the last part of chapter 5, comes back in verse 33 and summarizes how husbands and wives are to manifest their submission with these words. Each one of you, he's talking to the husbands, must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. How do we manifest mutual submission to Christ in the context of our marriage relationship? What Paul is saying is, husbands, you do it by love. Wives, you do it by respect. Now, when he calls on husbands to love, he's not talking fluffy clouds and candied apples and unicorns and pastel colors. I mean, I'm not against any of that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the most robust, self-sacrificing, other-centered kind of love imaginable. Do you know how we know that? Because he describes that earlier in the passage when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he defines that kind of love with five English words. What is that kind of love? He gave himself up for her. Absolute sacrifice. So to my counselee who says, you get her to submit to me and everything will be fine. In that moment, I know you have not understood Paul. Because if you had understood Paul, you would have walked into this office dragging a cross. Because that's the model Paul uses. I will sacrifice and do anything in my power to love you in the way you need to be loved. That's the way you manifest your mutual submission to Christ in the context of your marriage. And wives, respect. So let me say this. You may say this is playing fast and loose with the text. You can throw it out the window on your way home. But just hear it. So I've spent a couple years reading about the, actually more than a couple, but reading about thinking about, studying about these things. And I have noticed that there are writers, writers in the popular press, uh, writers in the academic press, writers sacred and secular, that say that commonly speaking, I want to be very careful and not push anyone into a box, because not everyone fits, but commonly speaking, men and women have a pretty core need. If I understand some of these authors correctly, what they would say would be this. If we went out there and just pulled 20 men in here and stood them up across the front of the church and asked them, when it comes to your marriage, to your intimate relationship with your beloved partner, as the NRSV puts it, 
What is your deepest need? We're not talking about the business world, the world of finance, the world of medicine, the world of law, world of construction, none of that. In your marriage relationship, what's your greatest need? If I understand these writers correctly, they say probably the most common answer we will get is that men will say, I have a need to feel capable, able, respect me for my abilities. I can do it. When I first began studying this some years ago now, it was before God had created GPS. And so I can remember the experiences of looking for a new place, being in a car, and my wife saying something like, <clears throat> you must like that gas station because we've been buying it three times. Um, in fact, you know, why don't you just uh, go in and, and ask? I'm sure they can help you find where it w Man, that ticked me off. Because you know what? When she said, I'm sure they could help you find, you know what I heard? You need help. <laughs> Just admit it, get it, and we'll all be better off. And I found myself saying, I don't need help. I know exactly where I am. Exactly. Behind the steering wheel in my car. <laughs> Something in me pushed back against that. By the same token, for my wife, there's a curious reality that she would probably join what 20 women pulled in here to answer that question. In your intimate relationship, we are not talking here about the professional world where everybody needs respect. But in your intimate relationship with your partner, what's your deepest need? If I understand the writers correctly, they will say your deepest, the most common answer you will hear is my deepest need is the need to be cherished valued. I'm at the top of the priority list, and there is no competition. So, our anniversary is April 26th, right about when the NBA playoffs begin. <laughs> now, I'm not sure how that happened. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, how did you let that happen? No. So, Years ago, as I'm struggling to understand some of this, April 26 rolls around, and we go out to eat. And we sit down to eat, and I look up, and, and I have just my own private worship service because right behind Anita's head is a mammoth TV screen <laughs> showing the playoffs. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> I don't even have to move my head. Just my head, all's my eyes, just kind of looking up like, she doesn't even need to know this. This is beautiful. And then she turns around. Says, oh, no, 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 baby, baby, baby. It's just you and me. You and me and the flame of our candle. That's all that exists. I mean, you, me, and the spurs. That's just it for tonight. And if and as that happens, I'm saying, why does that ruin it? Why? Because you know what she would be saying? She would be saying, really? Seriously? On our anniversary? It can't just be. There's a deep need to say, I come first. Love, respect. But there's one last place where I wonder if there aren't applications of this. And that's as couples get angry, have conflict, 
as he begins a fairly common way, not every man by any means, but a fairly common way where the man pulls away and goes into his cave and shuts her out and from him emanate all these messages that say, you could drop off the planet and I wouldn't care. And it strikes at the deepest, the most fundamental need she has. So you know how she may respond? Not everyone, but many. What is wrong with you? You know that slit you have in your face? That's called a mouth. And a mouth is used to talk. Can you open up? Can you not say anything? Who raised you? And chop, chop, chop at the self-respect, communicating you're utterly incapable. And it strikes at his deepest need. And right in the middle of that, an aged, imprisoned apostle steps up and says, no, no, no. You and you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because in the Christian home, everybody gets to submit because God created us all equal. And that is that to which he wishes us to grow. So I have an assignment for you, for every one of you. Everyone can do this. This week, I want to ask you to have the Spirit of Jesus invited into your heart to give you eyes to one place, just one place, where you can manifest mutual submission to Christ. I don't know where that will be. It could be as a, as a boss treating your employees differently, as an employee being more faithful in your work, as a parent honoring and loving and being patient to your children, as a child giving obedience or honor to your parents, or as a husband or a wife loving and respecting. But somewhere Paul's words will cut across the grain of your life. And just pray, Jesus, give me the insight and the power to submit. Because when you do that, you will be walking in the way of Jesus. Gracious God, it's really stunning, Lord, your plan, your desire, what you want for us. Lord, give us humble, gracious, generous hearts. Teach us to submit out of reverence for Christ. In his blessed name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.